Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Yes, he does. So this is lesson 13 in the study of the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 4. And I want to begin reading with verse 12. We've read here this before, but I want to start here today. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So I don't know what's popping up there, but maybe we could mute it. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but I wanted to begin here today for another look at this writer's exhortation to the readers. He says the word of God is like a double-edged sword. It's living, it's active. And for me, as I said before, it takes me three places. Two of those are the book of Revelation and the book of Genesis. First, Genesis, because it tells us of a sword that flashes back and forth, guarding the way to the tree of life, the paradise of God, the Ghani Din, the Sabbath rest. There's many names for it. But the sword is ever diligent, flashing back and forth, cutting down everyone with sin. Everyone that is impure. Everyone and everything that is not of God. After Adam and Hava were removed, they never were allowed back into Ghani Din. The presence of God. The word of God is living and active and it judges everyone. Because at the end of this life, everyone tries to enter. And the sword cuts either for death or it cuts away the flesh of your life, cutting it away, allowing you to enter. It decides whether you're going to paradise or to Gehenna, commonly referred to as H-E double toothpicks. <laughs> now, how does it make that decision, though? How does it make such a decision? It looks at... Whether you said the standing prayer three times a day or whether you said grace after meals each time you ate, then it looks at your good deeds, those things you did in your life. It decides whether or not they were good enough. Were you a good member at your synagogue or church? Did you give a tenth each week? Always bring something to share at the Onig? Did you, did you always treat the leadership with respect and give to the food shelf? Always smile at your neighbor and treat him kindly? Judges all of those things, right? Well, yes and no. But one thing it does judge, not so much your actions, but more importantly, the heart behind those actions. As an example, you know, I have people, and I'm sure you have too, that, that you know, you know that they don't like you much, but every time you see them, they smile at you, they tell you how much they love you and, and wish you well. You see, those kind of things don't cut the muster because God's looking at your heart. You hear preachers tell you that if you give this amount, God will bless you with this or that. And so they give to get. Well, giving to get doesn't cut the muster either. 
The word will judge your heart. And so we have to look at our hearts and everything that we do. Get rid of the bitterness and unforgiveness and so forth. All of these things that contaminate the heart. That's why the psalmist says this in, in Psalm 139 verses 1 through 4. He says, Oh Lord, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You see, the psalmist knows what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, that God knows the heart, the source of your action and your words, that nothing is hidden from his sight. And even before you speak a word, he knows the source. He knows the true meaning behind your words. And so God sees the heart which is the source of all action. So later the psalmist says in the same psalm, in verse 23, he says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You see, the word of God tries and tests people. There's something else about the word of God. That we have to come to grips with. And that is the word of God is black and white. And there are no gray areas. God doesn't want a mixture. If you look at his word. There's clean and unclean. Pure and impure. There's no half and half. Just one or the other. You're either you're clean or you're unclean. If you look at a Torah scroll. The page is white. The letters are black. And the word discerns your heart. In the discerning, there's nothing gray. You know, I was at the conference this week and Jonathan Kahn spoke about the world becoming black and white. And the gray areas are disappearing. And we all know that to be true. In the last days, the world is going to decide solemnly in one camp or the other. And we see this happening today. It's sad to see these things that were once taboo now becoming accepted. And not just accepted, but people are asked to choose. Which side are you on? Where do you stand? And in choosing, the world is becoming more and more polarized. We can see this in gay marriage. The Gay Marriage Act that was passed. Not only did it come to a vote, when it, when it came to a vote, it made people choose the camp that they're in. Not only that, now that it's legal, it will further cause people to choose between God's word, what God says, and what the world says. We can see this in business right now. If you're in the wedding business, you're going to service gay marriages no matter what your faith is, no matter what you believe. You're asked to accept what the word of God says is wrong. Or you'll be punished. You'll be sued. You'll be put out of business. We see churches becoming polarized as well. Some offering gay marriage, some not. Others standing the course of the word of God. And what's coming next is persecution. For those choosing the word of God. We saw this. Uh, those, who, who, there's gonna, those who stick with the word of God are going to be persecuted. Like that gal in the south who worked for the license bureau. She was put in jail. For holding to not only her belief, but holding to the word of God. And this will spread. One day you'll see churches persecuted for the same thing. 
So as the world grows darker, light is going to separate from the darkness. Jonathan Kahn made a great point of this. And so we as the people of God must, as Hebrews says, hold firmly to the faith we profess. You see, as the world goes darker or goes black, we have an opportunity to shine even brighter. However, if we're going to shine brighter, we have to become more polarized ourselves. We have to begin to choose the Word of God in everything that we do. We have to choose it from the heart. If we allow fear to control our actions, we'll not stay the course because through all of this, there's one who sees the heart. And so we need to be in, of the same prayer as the psalmist. Search my heart, O oh God. Be there any wicked way in me? Be there any compromise in me? Because while the world is turning black and white, that mixture of gray won't cut it either. Compromise or gray is offensive to God. Listen to what 1 John tells us in chapter 3, verse 5. It says, This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Yeshua and His Son purifies us from all sin. You see, the world becomes black. Everything around us is acting us, asking us to accept the black. Another point Jonathan made, look at the TV we watch. It's becoming more and more offensive. Watch older TV programs. They were perfect family settings. Father knows best. So forth, you know. Now we have ads where two men are feeding a child, one saying, I'm your daddy. Then the other one says, no, I'm your daddy. Used to be cowboy movies or cowboy movies. They were all boys. Now, you never saw an unmarried couple sitting on the same bed. Now it's hard to find something you can even watch. Separate yourself because gray will be judged like black and so we must be more diligent than before. And Yeshua told us, he, he told us the same thing. Think of something that's like white, black, and gray. How about hot, cold, and warm? Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 says, These are the words of the amen and faithful true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So the point is, as Hebrews says, we must give an account. Everyone will pass by the sword, is going to give an account. And so the writer of Hebrews says this then. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin.
You know, we're going to look at this high priest next week, but the text says we have a great high priest. And it might be better stated this way. We have a great high priest who is great. You see, in Hebrew, this would read Kohen Hagadol. And if, and if we translate it, we transla- I mean, we translate it high priest. But you Hebrew students should know that Gadol means great. And so it would be redundant to say great, great priest, wouldn't it? Hence, we should probably read this. We have a great priest who is great. He's great because he passed through the gate and he can lead us through the gate if we hold firm. And notice that it says he's able to sympathize because he's been tempted in every way as we were. And yet, he overcame the temptation and was without sin. He's able to lead us because he was without sin. As Peter says in chapter 2, verse 21, To this you were called because Messiah suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. You see, this, we have this example in Messiah Yeshua. You know, there's a f- saying that's become popular amongst Christians, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And we should be asking ourselves in everything that we do, what would Yeshua do? You see, we have this opportunity, as I said, to shine brighter in these last days. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse, or chapter 5 and verse 20, it says, We are therefore Messiah's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Messiah's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are his ambassadors, his representative, and in him there is no darkness at all, no black, not even gray. Now he speaks of this great priest passing through the gate. You see, the writer is going to use all of this temple imagery in the coming chapters. Here because we see the same gate to Ghani Din in the temple. In the Holy of Holies, there was one piece of furniture. And I put it up here for you. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And once a year, the great priest entered and made atonement for all the people and the cleansing of the sanctuary of the temple. And notice what we have here. Carabim. And it said that God dwelt between the cherubim and appeared as a beam of light. That's what we have here. And at Ganadin, we had cherubim and a flaming sword. One is the shadow of the other. Well, the great priest went to the entrance once a year. And the writer says, our great priest, who's greater, passed through. 
And you have to understand when you read these things the, the importance of this great priest to the people of the first century. And the height from which this office of great priest had fallen by the first century. Listen to what the Encyclopedia Judaica says of this great priest. With the Roman conquest of Judea and subsequent Herodian rule, the office of the high priest became a political tool in the hands of the administration until the destruction of the temple and was never returned to its earlier prominence. By the end of the second temple period, the, the high priest was considered no more than a religious functionary of the Roman administration. Thus, even the garments of the high priest were entrusted at times to the hands of the local Roman procurator and handed over to the priest just prior to the various festivals. You see, what was once a lifelong position given by God to a specific family of Levites, became one that could be given or taken away by the Roman government. So here's what we have by the time of the writer, uh, the writer of Hebrews writes his letter. Those, we have this great priest who's not a great priest at all. He's a puppet of the Roman government. We have a great priest that goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement with no fear of dying. Not so with Aaron. Look what happened to his sons. Aaron went inside. I can imagine he trembled with fear and awe because just a few steps behind the curtain was the dwelling presence, the Shekinah of God. He was about to come face to face with, God, with a God so holy that his sons died for offering strange fire. They went before the Lord improperly and were struck down. And so Aaron would indeed be fearful and careful. But the high priest of the first century, not so much. I want you to think of Caiaphas, the high priest, going into the Holy of Holies or one of his predecessors. Where was their fear? I don't think they had any. Why not? Well, of course, they knew the ark wasn't in there. There had been no ark in there for a long time. They had spoken to others that knew the ark wasn't in there. Was, there, was, there was no ark. God wasn't in there either. The Holy of Holies was a little more than an unused, empty room. But then the temple was empty of the divine presence as well. With a few exceptions that we read about in the book of Acts, there had been even, not even any prophecy in the temple for centuries. The Spirit of God was not there. The glory had long since departed. But it was worse than that. Think of after 30 common era, the Yom Kippur miracles of the temple had stopped as well. You see, the Talmud records many miracles happening in the temple on Yom Kippur. Miracles that showed God's acceptance and affirmation of the Yom Kippur offerings being accepted. But by this time, those miracles had stopped. In the 40 years before the destruction of the temple, certain miracles associated with the temple and the Day of Atonement and with the great priest no longer happened. There were miracles that were associated with the Day of Yom Kippur when the two lots were chosen to decide the fate of the goats. 
There was one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. And the lot for the Lord always came up in the right hand of the great priest. And it was a good sign. A sign of blessing for the coming year. Another miracle was the goat for Azazel had a crimson cloth tied to its horns. And part of that cloth was taken and tied to a pole in the temple. It was displayed on a pole in the temple. And when the goat for Azazel was pushed off the cliff and died, the cloth in the temple turned white. It was a sign. As we read, I'm going to read a portion from the Talmud. Part of the crimson string that was displayed in the Beit HaMikdash, or the temple, when the goat was pushed to its death at Azazel, the people knew their sins were forgiven when the scarlet string in the Beit HaMikdash miraculously turned white. Now the significance of the cloth turning white should not be ignored because we can read in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. You see, they knew the scarlet cord turned white. As it turned white, all was well. The sins had been forgiven. They had been granted a year of prosperity. But during the last 40 years, remember the, the temple was destroyed in 70 common era. 40 years prior to that is 30 common era. During these last 40 years, it says this. Our rabbis taught that during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for the Lord never came up in the right hand, nor did the crimson colored strap become white. The scarlet cord had not turned white in 40 years. And so now you can see the mood of the Hebrews would have been very somber. Not only was there no prophecy any longer in the temple, but the miracles associated with all this all-important day had ceased. And they knew the words of Isaiah. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But they knew the rest of the passage as well. Let's read a little farther. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She was once full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers, your silver has become dross, your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove your impurities. You see, without the cord turning white, the sins had not been forgiven. Without the cord turning, the Lord was not pleased. He no longer inhabited the temple. Without the cord turning, the sins of Israel... We're piling up. The sins piling up for nearly 40 years. 
And if you were one of the true believers in Yeshua, you would think judgment cannot be far off. The great priest was a murderer. He murdered the anointed one. A thief. Yeshua said, you have made my house a den of thieves. Judgment was coming. I can't help but imagine. Think about this. The very first Yom Kippur that the cord didn't turn. Think for a moment. The gopher Azazel has left the temple. The people and the priests are waiting for the cord to turn white. They'd always waited. But this year, the cord is still red. My goodness, he's been gone a long time. Their eyes look again to the pole, but the cloth is still red, so they wait. Perhaps the goat was being really stubborn, and the priest was delayed because he's having to drag the goat. Time goes by. The cloth is still red. It's, it's getting later and later. He must be there by now. What's the delay? They wait and wait. Before long, this priest runs through the gate, not stopping, not talking. As he runs through the gate, he also looks up to see if the scarlet thread on the pole has perchance changed to white while he ran back to the temple. He's hoping as he runs through the gate, he will see the white but his hopes are dashed and he shakes his head. The cord is still red. And each year thereafter, they wait. But the same thing happened. There was no change. The cord was still red. So this is the dilemma of the Jewish people living in the land after Yeshua. No real great priests. No real miracles happening in the temple. The cord remaining scarlet. No purging of the temple. And the sins of the people of Israel are piling up. The offerings are not being accepted. The words of Isaiah are ringing in the ears. And for the believers, it's even more ominous. Because also ringing in their ears are the words of the Master when he says this in Matthew chapter 23. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The believers know the meaning of the signs in the temple no longer happening. The house is desolate, just as Yeshua said it would be. So they would know that the words, that his words were true. The last remaining miracles had stopped. The offerings were not accepted. The great priest was a farce. He was guilty of murdering Yeshua, the anointed one. And yet he emerged from the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement unscathed. The Day of Atonement was a farce, just a day of rote, where things were done. With no atonement, the destruction, Yeshua said, was looming. They also knew these words of Yeshua. Yeshua left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see these things he asked, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This is the mood of the believers who are receiving this letter we call Hebrews. 
And not just that, but remember, their leader, James, the brother of the Lord Yeshua, has suffered death, as have others. Many also at the hands of this great priest. How can the great priest go into the Holy of Holies with innocent blood on his hands and and come out unscathed? Horror of horrors, our righteous anointed is departed from us. Horror has seized us. The Lord has departed the temple in Israel. And so the disciples are being killed. The prophecies of Yeshua are now coming to be. A great priest who is not a true great priest is in the temple. And not only that, he has innocent blood on his hands. And yet he goes in with no consequence to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Think about what this means to Torah observant Jews living in the land of Israel. There's no atonement for the sins of the people. There's no purging of the temple. What glory had been in the temple has departed, as has the miracles. And yet, the offerings went on. The people, after the goat for Azazel had been pushed off the cliff, used to rejoice, dance in the streets at the end, and feasted at the end of the day because they knew all was well. That's the way it was before this 40-year period. But now all was not well. I wonder how they felt on Yom Kippur and Passover and Shavuot as they went into the temple. I wonder how I would have felt at Passover as they, or they would have felt as they ate the Passover meal. Granted, the meal would have had more meaning after Yeshua came. They would see the Messiah and all the elements of the meal. And all the instructions uh, of Passover that pointed to, to Yeshua. But with the Romans looming over the temple, controlling the services and the great priests, James being martyred, Matthew, Paul, Peter gone, might begin to look to them as maybe they'd been passed over. Think of Shavuot. The Shavuot after Yeshua died. Many of these folks can remember The Spirit of God being poured out and the joy of seeing prophecy fulfilled. 3,000 people added to the kingdom in that day, but now the temple was empty. Yet as the writer said, Therefore, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Yeshua the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And they did hold firmly to the faith they professed. We stand here today because they held firmly to the faith they professed. They were not in fear. They were not fearful to preach the good news. There were Nazarenes until the 4th century. And now our time has come. Because the world is becoming darker. And we have this amazing opportunity to follow Messiah's example And the example of these earlier followers of Yeshua to hold firmly to the faith we profess. Amen? We can say, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine in the midst of all of this darkness. Amen? Amen. I wanted to point out one other thing. I had it as part of the message, but I must have went by. But I want to say this. You know, you've often heard me say, say the world is getting darker and darker. And you've often heard me say, I believe... 
that God hid the pronunciation of his name lest it be profaned. And, you know, as, as um, Nick pointed out, the important thing is to understand the qualities anyway. But he hid his, the pronunciation of his name so that it wouldn't be profaned. I've said this many times. Well, when I was in Florida, we went to see Star Trek. Not Star Trek, but Star Wars. Don't go, it isn't that good. But anyway, they had some trailers for some upcoming movies. These were like Marvel, these Marvel hero movies. And one of them started out this way. A voice speaking said, Some have called me Krishna. Some have called me Buddha. Some have called me Yahweh. The Lord's name is being profaned in this day. That's how dark things are getting. Amen? Let's bring the worship team back up.